yeah, that's why we dance, because it gives us so much satisfaction and sometimes the words aren't enough. And that is important, that the doors can be opened via different routes, by different conversations. The curtain call at the end of the evening is only one aspect of your achievement. We don't send our champions out to run in pumps and expect them to win the medals. And I'm going to share a little story. Not a lot of people know it, but it's quite, it's quite open. Our next guest is Sharon Watson, MBE, awarded for services to dance. The list of awards and accolades Sharon has won is honestly staggering, but let's just name a few. She was named one of the Cultural Leadership Programme's Women to Watch, a list of 50 influential women working in the arts and culture in the whole of the UK. She was the winner of the Sue Ryder Yorkshire Women of Achievement in Business Award and named Yorkshire Woman of the Year. She has received the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts' Companionship Award, awarded by Sir Paul McCartney. And she was recognised as one of the 100 faces of a vibrant economy in 2017 by Grant Thornton. Sharon was also named as the Arts and Media Senior Leader of the Year by Black British Business Awards. Now, that's just a fraction, and honestly, that's just scratching the surface. She's been presented with an honorary fellowship by Northern School of Contemporary Dance, and she has an honorary doctorate from Leeds Beckett University for her contribution to the arts. The awards are one thing. For me, they show one aspect of Sharon, that she is a much-loved and revered person, someone who is picking up appreciation not just from our industry, but in things like business and leadership. For me, Sharon is a cultural leader, someone who really sees things for what they are. Her background may be in dance, but what she speaks about in this chapter speaks to so much more than just dance. I cannot wait for you to hear it. This is The Director's Diary. My name is Alex Palmer. It's no one's intention ever to share a diary, so if you're listening to this, keep it close and use it well. Hi, Sharon. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, I'm so excited to hear what you've got to say. Um, But first of all, how are you? I'm doing really well. Um, I had a relaxing break, so I'm feeling a lot refreshed and uh, yeah, looking forward to what the future holds for us. Amazing. So I'm really interested to see see where this goes. So uh, the first thing we do with special guests is a bit of an impossible task. It's to tell me your life story in two minutes. So I know you've got a timer there. Um, So for those who don't know, who are you? So my name is Sharon Watson. I'm currently in a position as a CEO and the principal of the Northern School of Contemporary Dance in Leeds. And Leeds is where I was born and bred and grew up until the age of 16, of which then I went off to London to study. Um, and I work in the dance industry and I have done for the majority of my career. I'm a mum, I'm a wife. Um, I have a very large family, um, not my immediate family in terms of my children, but I have a very large extended family for which I spend a lot of my time with. But as I said, my career has been really seeped in in dance and that contemporary dance. Um, Having studied from 16 to 18, 19 uh, in London, I then came back to Leeds uh, after a period of time and continued my career in the city here in Leeds uh, with Phoenix Dance Theatre. 
and I also then went on to moving on from being a dancer with the company to being the rehearsal and tour director and then moving on to being the artistic director of the company. Um, I am someone who's a very optimistic, optimistic person. I love taking chances and risk, but I also like to provide opportunity for other people. And I think in my career now, I'm much more of a facilitator than I am anything else. And I really thoroughly thrive in that space. I was happily and quite nicely awarded an MBE in the, uh, as a deputy lieutenant recently, which has also opened up new opportunities and new spaces, which is exciting me. And I think whilst I'm here at the school, working with a lot of people, working with young people and being able to help and educate is kind of what ticks my butt, what gets me up in the morning. And yeah, that's kind of, that's, that's, um, that's really a very direct uh, sort of look at, at me in terms of my career. But um, there are so many other areas of work that I really love developing. And I guess I'm a mentor champion for other things that uh, helps to develop other people within their careers and within their futures. So much to unpick there. So um, I'd like to take you right back to the start of your kind of experience with dance. And I've heard you speak about Hare Hills Middle School. I've heard you speak about your older sister being an influence and um, and kind of your first interactions with dance. Um, and I've also heard you speak about a mentor, a crucial mentor of yours, um, Nadine Seniors. Is that right? Could, could you speak about that time of life and kind of getting into dance and why dance and what it meant to you and yeah what's why why should anyone get into dance <laughs> well I mean that's the question that we're still asking today um, because it's the business that drives us really if you can answer that question then we've pretty much answered a lot of the challenges that I think we face but taking taking us further back in terms of my early days it was it was almost accidental. I mean, when my parents came and settled here in Leeds, we had no connection to dance whatsoever. And as I say, I'm from a big family, so I'm number seven of eight in terms of children. And, you know, you follow your brothers and sisters' footsteps in terms of school and education. And it was my sister, as we mentioned earlier, that was the one that went to Hell's Middle School. And the inspiration, I think, there was something particularly inspiring about the ability to dance within the school that was quite unusual that took me before I even got to the school. So I was hooked before I knew what I was able, uh, capable of doing, or even met Nadine Senior, who was the inspirational teacher that really captured a lot of other young people's imaginations and basically told us that this is something you can do and, and something that is enjoyable. You can make a living doing this. Um, from an inner city school and thinking at the age of nine, I, I said as well that I, was, I came home after my first dance lesson and said to my mom at 16, I'm going to London to, to be a professional dancer. And both my parents really feeling shocked when 16 came and I had my suitcase and I was ready to go, which was quite an unusual thing to have happen. And then my sister, who was two years older than, than I was, was working in the solicitor's office. And I just said, look, just come with me. You want to dance. So just get, get come and do it. And we did. We just, you know, it was Nadine Senior, as I say, that kind of got our grants threatened to give back her MBE because there's no way we could afford to do this if we weren't given a grant and they refused us a grant at that stage and she, she threatened to give back her MBE because that was what she did, she was that kind of woman and they gave us a grant and off we went. She's my sister 18, I'm 16 and we're in London training to be professional dancers. It was, and I think that process of just engaging with other young people and understanding how the form of dance can be so rewarding physically, mentally, emotionally, it challenges you in so many different ways that I don't think we talk enough about 
the transferable skills that we're able to do and how it does help with you calculating other aspects of your life, then yeah, that's why we dance because it gives us so much satisfaction and sometimes the words aren't enough. That's a great answer. Fantastic. Um, so talk me through the journey then. So you, you are trained in contemporary dance in London and then after you, you graduate, after after you leave London, what, what happens then? Is, is, is that the time you're setting up ABCD or is that what, what happens then? Actually, between graduating and coming back to Leeds, there's a good eight to ten years where I spent my time in London as a professional dancer working with other companies. I did a few. I did a lot of other things as well as I was in London, which was interesting because I think although I had a focus that I wanted to be a professional dancer with a rep company, I didn't know which one actually. But and um, I joined Extemporary Dance Theatre as well as a few other companies. It was the other other things that I was experimenting with. So I went and did a couple of films. I did. Um, trade shows, I did catwalks, I did a lot of things where dance was actually applicable. They wanted good dancers and I was one of them so I was able to take on jobs that were fantastic and quite rewarding just in a very different genre of dance. Um, 89 was when I got the invitation to come back to Leeds and even then I hadn't started ABC Dance then which was Arts Beyond Contemporary Dance um, which was a a company which was it consisted of musicians as well as dancers and we, we taught, but I, I really ventured down that road to be able to learn. I wanted to be able to understand the whole business of running a company. And you don't go in half measure, do you? So you bring musicians in and you plan your tour, you ask council funding and you figure it all out as, um, as I was also lecturing here at the school, at the Northern School. So it was, a, it was something I did in the times that I was able to commit to spending time thinking about what the future of my career might look like as well as delivering um, here as a, a lecturer at school. And do you look back on the thing, the other things that you did in London and kind of connect the dots forward and go, okay, this really helped me in this. So like what, could you talk a bit, bit that's really interesting, that kind of uh, period of time where you're, where you're um, exploring different things. So what, and also how were you able to do that? So did you have a, a job that paid that you were able to stay in London to do all of the interesting stuff? Like, what, how did, how did that work? I was, I was employed, and I was employed pretty much, actually, some freelance work, and uh, I was with Extemporary Dance Theatre for three years as their BP Dance Apprentice, one of the first. I was sponsored by, yeah, Petroleum, um, British Petroleum. <laughs> Took the money, great work, of course. It paid, it gave me a salary, and it also gave me the opportunity to do exactly that, to be able to lily pad into other areas of the industry that could test my abilities, and test whether or not you know the training I had will enable me to have a fruitful career and a versatile career, of which it did. And I think looking back at it now, it's the one thing that I find I'm able to say to students, do not say no to anything because your dance training does provide you with the groundwork and with the platform for which you're able to do all of that. What they want is movement and good movement. And I think providing your, your head allows you to transition information then that's fantastic and you know commercial does pay um so sometimes when you're in other jobs and it's not necessarily doing paying the bills that's an area of work that you can do for you know very quick work for very great good money um and i think your versatility as as in terms of an art form just tells you how versatile how versatile you can become and what to do with it so yeah you can bounce around and i think it's not, you might not like the kind of work that you, that pays the bill sometimes, um, but I think it's the open-mindedness that allows you to grow. 
and it's in my toolkit now so it just it's a great way to be able to say well if I ever needed to go back to it um, or if I needed to advise anyone in that area I have lived experience of it and exactly so you understand it's another part of the world you understand isn't it so so let's let's go to setting up ABCD for for someone who hasn't so for someone who wants to and hasn't set up a company what how how do you even go about doing that that seems like such a, a massive undertaking so what what do I do in that scenario do you know what was really interesting about ABC dance was that actually we as most people do you kind of get together and you think god this, we're great together so the dancers I had and then I I did so again in the freelance world I met a couple of musicians that were doing something very different and I thought actually I could really I'm inspired by what you do maybe we just get in the studio and and do something of course there's no money in the first stages so you're kind of doing this for the love of it and also because you've got a chemistry going that you feel this is worth investing in and that's how we continue to develop I think the one thing that was a bit of a challenge was not quite understanding how I was going to get money and so to try and talk to the people that that was pulling money in I had the opportunity to basic here at the school so I spent a lot of the time doing it in the evenings or at weekends and definitely over the summer breaks and finding the people that had the knowledge that could help me look at applications for funding and but also knowing that we had something more than just a dance production we were looking at music we were looking at narrative works and we were looking at particular stories and I think that was the sellable product that people were interested in and people were interested in funding so you, you before I knew it we had a company and we had a booking we had performances and it almost happened by osmosis um, and I'm not saying that every company sort of develops that way but it was really quite exciting to think that actually what was selling this was the art and everything else then fell into place yeah that makes sense and then it, so in that way you're ensuring it's organic and you're working with people that you know you can and like to work with as well it's not forced <laughs> and not everyone was from me um, as much as I know I had the, the kind of some of the resources here locally I was working with uh, the musicians were from Nottingham and so you know we had that kind of I don't know how many miles between us but it was just a great way to work because again two locations it was a, a, an opportunity and and I think once you're touring you're you're wherever it needs to take you but it was good that we were really expanding our our reach. Yeah uh, what was your role in that company then what were you uh, artist director yeah so did you move from there to Phoenix, Phoenix Dance? Yes, I did. What did I do then? Goodness. I, um, I was, I'd been a performer with Phoenix and I'd gone into the school as a lecturer and that's when ABCD came about. And I spent many years here at the school lecturing and it wasn't until, I can't remember what year it was now, maybe it was year 2000 when the new artistic director at the time came and asked if I'd go back on stage. And I couldn't, have, I could not comprehend that question at all. Um, I just had my first child as well. And I just said, there's no way that I'm going back on stage. And I think my having spent the time teaching, I felt that I'd actually really transition into another, into the next stage of what it is that I did well. And that was nurture other people. So yeah, when he said, well, actually, really, I need a rehearsal director and you'd be fantastic. I said, okay, I'll bite your hand off for that. That's great. I'll have that one. And from there, it was, yeah, we just really kind of developed and grew. And again, it was a real learning opportunity for me there in terms of the bigger company and the company that was already funded. 
um, a company that I'd been a dancer in and actually felt I could at one day, I did say it, I could run this company um, before I even gave it the opportunity to try. And uh, I was just thrilled that I was back on the inside. Yep. Did you ever have imposter syndrome? Always. <laughs> and I have it now. I really do. I have it now. And I think someone said to me the other day, you've just got to get over that and stop, you know, you, you've done it. You did 11 years at Phoenix with imposter syndrome. It's a bit of a weight to carry. You don't want to go through the next job feeling that you've got imposter syndrome yet again, because it is weighty. That whole thing of just kind of, I mean, I'm still in disbelief that I'm here, if I'm being totally honest with you. But at the same time, when I look at what I've done in the last, what are we now, 18 months, and I think, actually, Sharon, you're doing it. You are doing it. Um, there's no job that you walk into that's not going to have challenges or it's not going to be different or you know everything you're not this is quite a, a hybrid of, of knowledge that you need and I'm I feel like I have I've seeped myself in, a, in one aspect of it and the other side is my learning so that's a great way to be because the, the curiosity and that energy it drives you and also the confidence also propels what it is that we're doing in the building so it's a great combination to have. So I've got to get rid of that, that syndrome and the iceberg and just chip away at making sure that that doesn't stop what I, how I feel about the role. It's amazing to me that you've got imposter syndrome because of someone who I look up to in the industry going, okay, well, that's somewhere to aim for. And even then it's like, okay. Um, yeah. It's a real thing. It really is. And I, I kind of, I don't really know how other people deal with it. Um, mm. But I, and in fact, I, I deal with it with um, talking about it. I do talk about it. Um, and you just suddenly realise, actually, it's no worse than just something that, yeah, you would do in terms of going to the shop and buying an item. You've got choices to make. And sometimes you make the right one and sometimes you don't return it when it's not working. I want to talk to you a bit about um, you as a leader then. And, and it kind of rolls on from that question, doesn't it? It's like, so, and there's many different things to talk about here, but I guess the first one I'd like to talk about is how do you, especially in that artistic director mould, how do you personally share your vision with the team? And how do you make sure that that it's collaborative, but um, it's also um your your thing and kind of there, there aren't too many cooks spoiling the broth as it were it's quite interesting because i think i think there's an assumption that leadership is collaborative in the way that you've just described it however but it is i, I think for me it is and i think also sometimes there's um and i wouldn't i'm say i'm going to say this but then i think i might contradict myself but there's almost a relinquishing of power in order to gain the bigger picture. And I, I found that that kind of leadership here in this, in this environment actually is working incredibly well because I know that you can be driven in an artistic director's role, you are commissioned, you are given the role to be able to drive that from your vision. And although you may have the initial idea, You've got to obviously think about the component parts that help you deliver that idea. It's your idea. Whereas I feel that in a way, there's there's a lot of sharing of the role here. And the vision is so much more, um, there's so much more sections to what's needed that it can't just be my vision. It can't just be my one idea. I have to draw on the strengths of those that have experience. 
but those that are curious and those that really want to ask the questions that have no knowledge in order to make sure that the vision that we're all working towards is bought in by everyone. Um, and I, there, is a, there is a shift. And I think sometimes when I do question, and I guess that, that, that syndrome of whether I'm leading, actually it's also enabling. And it's enabling me to be able to empower others to be able to do what I think is the bigger picture. And we built that bigger picture of success and drive collectively because you're not here because you want to take home a paycheck. I don't think that this is that kind of job for anyone, but you, you understand why you get up in the morning and what it is that you, when you have 250 young people looking at you for inspiration and advice and guidance, you really can't take the time to bullshit. You really do need to be able to figure out how you focus in for the sake of the greater good. And you know, the one individual, the 250, still requires that leadership attention from a collective voice. So no, I, I really do. And I think I've been literally thinking about that since I've arrived because under COVID we've had a very different scenario and I've been able to have a different energy around how we build the leadership of the school. And it seems to be working because I think some of the, you know, we've not just kind of slapped the plaster on and gone, this is how it's going to be. So you're beginning to see things nurture from the inside. And I like that because it's got a fantastic energy. And people are believing that actually this is the direction of travel that's worth worth working towards. Yeah, that, I think that's really powerful. I think there's also kind of other aspects of this. You're a, a woman in a, a position of power, a leader. You're also a person of colour in a position of power in a, an industry that... Um, how do I put this? Maybe you could put this more eloquently than me, but it has a vision of what should in to commas look like or do. Um, I think that's really important. I would could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, happy to. It's um it's an interesting combination when you have a black female at the head of an organization. Um sometimes it pays to be invisible. It really does. And sometimes you don't have a choice, but you end up becoming invisible. And both of them have their challenges. And in a way, I think what I often tell the people I coach, mentor, work with, that actually, if you if you value your worth, then you have to tackle that. You have to deal with that. And I think by building your personal confidence around who you are as a person enables you to sit at the table and actually be a voice that's no longer invisible or dismissed or ignored and those things happen quite a lot um, and it's not always easy to deal with so it, it kind of adds to this imposter syndrome around who you are and what you do but I genuinely do believe that I think I've grafted and as they say you earn your stripes in a way that enables you to talk about the environment you're working with because it is kind of predominantly male and predominantly white within our industry and those decisions don't often see you as part of that that makeup so you're not even considered. And that for me, you know, I do speak for the, in this case, the minority of people, but I know I have a majority vision. And, you know, in a way that's more empowering than you could have in terms of thinking on, on a streamlined approach to, to what's new and what's necessary. So it, it almost empowers me. And when I'm in that space, I have to use it well. Um, I don't shy away from my blackness. I don't shy away from my, the fact that I'm a female. Um, but I also let it be known that actually I've earned the right to be here and I can be the voice for other people. Not that I'm, I'm asking permission. I just am. I kind of put myself in that space because I would also hope someone that looks like me and has the experience that I have would also bring me to the table, even if I'm not there physically. Yeah, 
Um, and following on from that, so this podcast is listened to by a range of people, some of which own companies and some of which are individual artists. Um, for those who own companies, um, we've I've heard you speak about kind of the, the second pandemic in the industry of the kind of um, the Black Lives Matter movement and that kind of that is the next thing in our industry to tackle, um, and it's the thing that is like most prominent. And I would absolutely agree with you. I think what what I, what I really want to ask you is how what are the practical steps that companies, institutions, um, individuals can do to ensure that it's not just like an engagement tagline at the bottom of a website or an email to say that we are really inclusive. Like how, what are the, what are the things or what, are, how can change happen in that, in that way? Massive question. I know. But <laughs> and it will be one of the things that I don't believe will go away for a very long time because unfortunately, in order for us to have got to this point where we realized that black lives matter, someone had to lose their life. And it's been happening for a while, but in terms of bringing it to the forefront into the public realm, that's what it took for us to be able to say, oh, it really is important. You know, climate change affects us all. It doesn't just affect the white people or the black people, it affects us all. But the fact that actually my colour affects me and people like me, it's not necessarily, it's a bigger challenge and to understand that. One of the things that I would hope people would see is that to acknowledge it first and foremost, it's not just a phase, it's not a trend, it's not passive. This is consistent. We have systems that are set up that keep things consistently happening. And until we acknowledge that, and you know, there is that defensiveness around, well, oh, it's time to move on. We've done that job. And I've heard that recently. Well, now we need to focus on, on the disabilities. It's like, well, we've always had disabilities, but it doesn't mean to say that we've done, we have not done the job. The evidence of like taking care of Black Lives Matter has not been concluded. Um, and you can't suddenly move on because we've had this very, very tense conversation around what to do next. And, you know, you see certain things, and I think the subtleties of the microaggressions are the kind of things that I would hope not just Black people, but white people can also see and identify and call out. And having, you know, as you've mentioned about the, the kind of strap line at the bottom of the job description, well, then just move it up to the top. And it just, it changes the dynamics of that paper when you read it. And maybe repeat it again in the middle and put it again at the end. So you said it, you're kind of hoping that they'll kind of not forget about it. And then at the end, you're going to make sure that it's reiterated. So it's clear that your intention is to be able to do this. But not be afraid to talk about it. Not be afraid to put it in the room. Because it becomes the elephant in the room. And you skirt around it and you kind of skirt. And it's, there you go. You've already started to put a problem. It, you begin, the black people that are there, or maybe they're not there, are starting to become a problem. And it's not a problem. I'm not afraid or ashamed of who I am. So you, by you not addressing that or just saying, listen, you know, we want black people, we want white people in this, but you're not even going to let the word black out of your mouth because it's a problem. Black isn't negative. <laughs> I'm not seen as a negative. I'm not seen as a minor. I'm not seen as someone that is kind of, you know, any different to the qualities that a white person could have. So don't treat me as such before you even get me in the room. And it's the mentality as well that could do with changing. And, um, you know, we have students here and I think the diversity of our school is changing, it's growing. And how we're offering that is to say, if you can see yourself, you can become it. And, you know, there's many that kind of question whether that's a reality. It really is a reality. If you can see it, at least you can ask a question. If you can't even get to the point of asking a question, then you're just 
kind of going through this phase where nothing seems to be um, tangible. So I, I love the fact that actually in, in being here that actually the students have come in and said, oh God, it's so nice to have you here. Not because they weren't grateful for the previous um, uh, principle, but because it's, it's something that is changing, it's happening. And was I here for as a token? I'm not sure it was, but it's a token because I feel qualified to do the job. So that kind of comes with it. I've not been told it's anything like that. And I don't, want, I don't believe that is the case. But what I do believe is that they, I bring something extra and that I think the, the school itself would struggle to kind of challenge and how to, we bring that in to embed that within the school that actually we can all be here and you can see yourself doing this work. So yeah, there's a, there's a bigger conversation, the frustration of that pandemic is coming. It's not over yet. And in fact, I don't even know if we scratched the surface, if I'm being honest, because I've mentioned in a lot of my other conversations, there's the lethargy around keeping that conversation going. You know, we've got histories of time to be able to make up for all of that. And people just believing that it isn't just a gesture and that the actions are the things that's going to make it real. And that's where I think we're at. It's about the actions. It's about hearing other people talk about it that perhaps don't look like me and knowing that the responsibility is being shared. Yeah, and and that the actions are continuing. It's not just a flash in the pan, but they are forever is yeah. the is the thing, isn't it? It's not putting a black square on your social media. It's it's um, it's the actions you insert in an institution that have effects 20, 30 years and beyond, you know. But as I say, some of the systems that are already there that we have are going to be difficult because they're set up to do what they've already done and they continue to do. And until we either, I don't know how much of that we're going to be able to penetrate, or how what the new systems need to look like and that I think is a is a better fight to consider how we build new systems that is much more inclusive and that starts with you know looking at everyone as opposed to how we keep other people in power that's always had the power to do what they've always done and exclude others so there is that challenge and I think that's the one that I would imagine most people would just go that's just too much work. I've never heard it put like that that it's building new systems rather than changing old ones i've never heard that. that's really interesting actually just rethinking the whole thing that's yeah that's really powerful um can we talk about there'll, there'll be dancers who are listening to this so can we talk about dancing specifically dancing and, and your because you come with a wealth of knowledge and kind of i am excited that the amount of advice you can give um, can we talk about the casting process for, for dancers and um, advice for aspiring dancers and kind of the tips and tricks that you, you might have or um, it's obviously not one size fits all and it's dependent on the, the production but um, yeah what what would um, so let's put a, an age on this so kind of anywhere from kind of 16 to 19, 20, kind of getting into that first first audition? What what should I do? There's everything going on in there, isn't there? Um, I imagine that most people that, have, um, that are going in, into the profession would have gone through some form of formal training or they're going through it at that age anyway. And I guess what would be interesting to know is, you know, how they're building their competencies beyond the environment that they're currently studying in because I think that's the place where you you test the waters and 
you have the conversations very open and honestly with the people that are tutoring. Um, but also you're starting to build relationships externally. And I think that's where you can utilize the environment you're currently in much better in terms of asking the questions. You know, what I will always say, what I did say a lot of the time was um, with the dancers at Phoenix, it was one of those things when dancers decided to move on, it's like, great, I'm sorry to lose you, but maybe it's, it's time for you to move on. Great, what would you like me to do? How would you like me to help you? Who would you like me to call? Because I believed in you, so I'm gonna be able to talk about you in a way that will enable others to do the same. Now, once I've broken that, you go out there and make it work. Don't mess it up, just go and make it work. But it is that thing is I did, I chose you, I believed in you, so I'm gonna make sure that actually this isn't wasted because I gained so much from the work that we did together. And that is important that the doors can be opened via different routes, by different conversations. And just to even sit and shadow someone, it's not a big ass. It's not massive. It's not, you know, we don't have to have the drama around it. You'd like to go and just sit in the studio quietly and observe the process. That's okay. If somebody wanted to do that with me, then I just said, yeah, this is a good day to come. This will be what happened. Come along. So it is the preciousness around what we do is not taking that away. It's just sharing it. <laughs> and, you know, of course, if the studio's closed, then that you understand the sensitivities going on around that. Respect that. But otherwise, share what we have. And it was Nadine that says sometimes we get we get too precious about it because the best way to to experience and to grow is to see it in action. And if you can bring them closer to it, they can almost feel it. And by that, that's what rubbed off on me. I was able to really kind of feel that I was close to the to the thing I wanted to become, to the place I wanted to be. And I sometimes feel that we can sometimes be a gatekeeper, not for the greater good. And that that's got to change because you know our future is in our young people that's how it's going to work and i think if we can change the model of how they engage with artists in the sector then this is probably one of the easiest easiest ways to do it they've got to figure out how to get there but once they're in that space feed them and you you said in that um that bit you know if you if you're in the thing go and do it go and go and um if you if you got kind of got the role going do it. So what what does that mean? So what what makes a good dancer for you? What characteristics do you do you need to have? I think there is something about maintaining your tenacity because with it for a dancer, if you haven't figured it out already, then I'm gonna tell you that a lot of the time, 90% of the time, you are told that's not quite right, that's not quite right, try it like this. Can you just fix that? Can you try that? We'll have some notes and we'll try that again tomorrow. See if you can. So there's always that side of looking at developing and trying to do. And actually, the curtain call at the end of the evening is only one aspect of your achievement. It's a great one and it makes you feel good. So yes, absolutely. But then you're back in the studio the next day being told, let's get this, let's just fix that little thing that went wrong there, or let's just fix. So it really is an interesting space that you operate. But I also feel for you as an artist that you can actually go in there and say, can you help me to fix this? Because I do want to make this better. It's not just being complacent. So a dancer that really drives themselves with tenacity and curiosity is a great dancer for me. A dancer that kind of knows the balance between, you know, being confident and not tipping that into the arrogance is a great dancer for me. A dancer that can, can help to articulate physically, can articulate verbally around an idea, can put into ideas into a conversation and around exploration, that for me is fantastic. And a dancer that knows when to be humble 
and also when to just say, I'm not quite sure about that, which is again, a balance is also a great answer. Technique is only one aspect. It's one aspect. And sometimes when you look at a dancer very closely, they may have the poorest and poorest of techniques. And yet what you engage with is an emotional performer on that stage that you would absolutely invest in 24 seven. That is the thing that you carry with you all the time. The technique can grow, the technique will develop, and hopefully you'll refine it to a place where it's, it's there to assist what you have, which is almost the thing that can't be taught. Is it also, a, I don't know if this applies in dance, but is it, is it also a case of when you don't know saying? Or like, it's, is there a kind of um, an expectation that dancers need to have the, have the answers? To, to, to do the choreography or like how what's that like for someone who doesn't know the industry very often dancers don't have the answers very often what a dancer will give you is a solution to a, a question that you might not even have the answer to and I think that chemistry is really important when you're exploring ideas there's never one real end game at the end of it. What I think you do is drive together and you kind of put this combination. It's like making a menu, a meal. You put the combination and the seasonings and the flavors together and suddenly what you thought you were going to get kind of an orange flavored essence of something. You've got a grapefruit kind of combination, which is actually what you really need. Um, the rights and wrongs are, are less important as opposed to the, the kind of the journey to getting something that really does feel connected and feels right. Um, and I say it very often to, to the people that I've, often choreographed or worked with if you change a move on a night and you've got a you're doing a solo and you suddenly felt empowered to do a move that that drives you in slightly different way which of the audience members is going to tell you it's wrong but you were inspired because you were in the moment you're feeling it you're living it in that moment in time it's real for you we're observers and actually that may well be what should have come out through the rehearsal process but didn't quite get there it took the performance for us to know that we're now beginning to to really add the flesh and the bones into this piece of work that is kind of driving it in a new direction and sometimes we need to own that obviously it's slightly different when you've got partner work or you've got ensemble work but I think when you're really driven by an, an emotion a thought a process then allow the freedom the creative freedom and the artistic license to let it grow because that's also how you as a creator can learn I would say that's so so exciting, and that's not dance specific. I don't think that's just be, that's just working creatively, um, and and being in that flow state, isn't it? It's that kind of that's really yeah, really exciting. But but we do have that um, we we do have that um, idea that whatever we've practiced in rehearsal should be the thing that we're aiming. Obviously, because we're rehearsing for it. But what you're saying there is that if you're really inspired in the moment, you, you should go in that direction. I think you have to be, you have to be, the dancers, the, the mind of the dancer has to be so sharp and so quick that, you know, in an ensemble, you can't just suddenly wander off and go and do your own thing. Of course you can't. But what I am saying is, so for example, there's a, one of the works I created, there's a very an opening section where there's a, a, quite a lengthy solo, but it's about a feeling. And although I've choreographed the steps, what I wanted was, for that to happen was for the for the dancer to embed that and to really make it happen. So some nights I didn't see the steps that I'd asked them to choreograph that I choreographed. And it was okay because you weren't taken away from the flavor and the essence of what it is that you're portraying to the audience. So you know you kind of and most of the time you're recording shows so you can go back and have a look at them. 
And I think that's wonderful. I think, you know, if you make me move, if you move me emotionally, chances are you're not, you're not far wrong from what it is that you intended to do or I intended to portray. Um, of course, in a group, sometimes you have a different way of communicating and talking on stage. And I don't mean literally talking, but in terms of the physical connections, that suddenly sparks that thing that goes, my God, that's, that's the little glitch. And it might not be there tomorrow night, but you're gonna, you know what it felt like, and therefore you're gonna strive to bring that back in another form. So I think these are things around allowing an artist to develop and not restricting, not, not pinning their wings down, because you can tell when that wall is suddenly flooding through into an audience and they just feel it. It actually almost doesn't matter what the narrative is or what's, what they're trying to, but providing they're connecting, then yeah, you've made that audience feel something and there you go, there's memorable moments. So yeah, give them the freedom. It's not so strict. It's not the words on the book that can never change. That would be so wrong. What, uh, what, what's bad advice that you hear being given to dancers? What's, what bad advice you have? What, what is bad advice that you've heard being given to dancers that you don't agree with? Or Yeah, yeah this, it happens. Uh, maybe perhaps a little less so as we become more conscious of our bodies and how our bodies can operate or uh, that they are not mm, infinite tools that can be you know, just pushed to the limit. Yes, we do try to kind of make sure we do the impossible around how we, we articulate our, our physicality. But I think when a dancer understands that something doesn't feel right, that sometimes their gut is not what, they should listen to their gut. And I think that's an area where I feel that perhaps there's less trust in that space. And that sometimes, or just it's just a niggle, keep going. Or it's just a this, you can manage. And then by the end of it, Nothing can be so important, nothing can be so important that you sacrifice your tool at this point so that you don't have a longevity within your career, nothing. So I think there is that understanding and that empathy around how you communicate that. Because of course, an artist, a dancer that's suddenly going, I don't feel great about this, or this is really hurting and it's day five and it's still hurting. Well, you will push it a bit more, actually take note. Um, and sometimes with a bit of rest, just stepping back off the gas will help that, that injury to heal that problem but if you push it to the point where you've ended up you know you end up kind of just finishing a career because of what you feel is the right decision or because you want it to happen I think that's irresponsible and that that confidence for a dancer to be in a space and go you know Sharon today this isn't going to work for me and I might just need to, to, to mark everything I might just need to jump in here and do this. You have to trust that they have the capabilities of fixing the problems when they arise or if they're behind on things, but don't ever force a dancer into an, in a position where they suddenly... Accidents do happen. I'm not going to dispute that. They do happen and sometimes they have... Because it's an accident, you're not prepared for it. But I think when something's building, you just need to stop and listen. Yeah, that's great. Dancers are athletes, aren't they? They're using their... Like any sports person, they are using their body and that's the tool for you. And sometimes I think, again, you know, we say with that comparison with athletes, we don't send our champions out to run in pumps and expect them to win the medals. So the facilities, the equipment, the environment has to be conducive to allowing them to, to bloom and to grow. Um, so, yeah, I just feel that it's not OK to put dancers on hard floors. And expect them to be amazing artists that you know in another 10 years from now 
the impact is sustainable and it sits in the body. So let's kind of change that, that model of what that is. I have to say it's, it is changing. The industry is recognizing that, but sometimes there is a little bit of, oh, it's okay. It's just a, you know, it's just a phone. We can, we can clean the dust up and make it, you know, it's uh, remember that we don't get our athletes running in pumps. So let's not expect the medals if that we're not going to give them the tools to do the job well. I love that. Next and um, um, next question. Uh, a favorite failure. Sometimes our, our failures can. Um, well, you you hear a lot, don't you, that you learn from your failures, but you don't ever learn from your successes. So often there can be kind of moments that mark a career or um, a company's existence. So what, what, um, yeah, what, what's what's your favorite failure that you can think of? I embrace failure, if that's the word we're using today, but I, I would say things that perhaps haven't gone the way that you planned it. Um, and I'm going to share a little story. Not a lot of people know it, but it's quite, it's quite open in terms of, I didn't get the job the first time I went to Phoenix. First time around, I was doing the job. <laughs> I was doing it. And, you know, the artistic director, it's like, Ash Sharon, she's running the company, Ash Sharon. And that's how we ran. We, we rolled with that. And then when I did go for the job, I didn't get the job. It was like, okay, that's interesting. So what it said to me was, I know I can do the job. For some reason, you don't believe I can do the job. Um, and I'm not suggesting that there weren't other people that were capable. But at that moment in time, I knew I could do the job. Where are my downfalls? Where's the gaps that I'm questioning for myself? So I, I went off and did a... A leadership course a bespoke one and made sure that I ticked all the things that I thought perhaps maybe was adding to that that doubt that I wasn't capable and then I went back the second time and got the job so it was it perhaps you know maybe it was fate that it happened that way but I think the fact that it enabled me to question where I perhaps maybe had my own doubts and my own gaps because I actually came back and felt a lot more confident saying well I've covered this I've done that I will learn to do that. But also being able to say that to myself, I don't have that answer and I'm never going to have it until I do the job because you don't pick this up just by osmosis. You have to do the job to know what that is. And I'll learn that when I get into the role and be able to present that in an interview. And, you know, I came out of the interview um, the second time round, and I was on the phone. I had to go to London for the second one. Um, and I'm on the phone just before I got on the train and said to my husband, I, I think I've messed this one up for sure. Um, I was very honest. I had to put up or shut up. And yeah, and like I say, under that, I did 11 years. Amazing. What a great story that is. <laughs> and and if you can, again, if you connect the dots forward, if that hadn't have happened... You, you know it, there's a kind of it's like a sliding doors moment isn't it there is but I also felt that I mean what I haven't shared is just all the other things that I've been doing so I I never felt that I was I was ever going to be short or miss an opportunity to work with other people to work with other companies my skills as a, as a director would have been utilized in other shapes and forms. I mean, there's always that challenge of thinking that nobody will want you or nobody will trust that I'll give you the opportunity. But I, I kind of felt that as I was developing, I was building myself a voice. I was recognizing myself as well. And just feeling as though actually I really do have something genuine to share. 
and that I can empower myself as well as other people. So if it wasn't Phoenix, would I have gone back to ABC dance? That is still, my husband keeps saying to me, Sharon, pick it up again and do and do and do. And I said, well, what else is there that I can't do in that role? He says, well, there's other things that I think people would be interested in what you're reading. People would be interested in your music list because I think the mind, the creativity of all of that would be fantastic to do. And I said, well, I can still do it now, but I think I understand where he's going with this idea. He loved ABC dance and what it, what it delivered. But I also felt that, you know, something, and I've not got an infinite amount of time I get to pick to do the best job that I can whilst I'm here. So, um, no, but I do, I think that there are things that, that I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy sharing and I would do that regardless. So, yeah. That's great. Th thanks for, um, thanks for your time today. Um, it's been, it's, that's passed by so quickly actually for me. I, I can't believe the time, but, um, you've been so honest and generous with, with your mind, with how you think about things. And I think you've imparted a lot of wisdom that will help a lot of people. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I think there's that one thing that I say, if you have a question, just ask it. Um, you know, if the door is half a jar, just push it open. Because that's really, I think, where I built my confidence just to kind of push. And nine times out of 10, the other person on the other side will say, oh, come on in. How can I help? Amazing. Well, all the best in the future, all the best at Northern School Contemporary Dance and I can't wait to see what, what you do next. Thank you.